the explosive new film, Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost, exposes secrets behind the government's takedown of General Michael Flynn. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. He told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. They had to get rid of Flynn. Flynn, Deliver the Truth, Whatever the Cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to SalemNow.com. SalemNow.com. Welcome to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. This program was originally broadcast live on 93.9 KPDQ. We hope you enjoy the show. Well, good afternoon and welcome to the Wednesday edition of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing, Dave King engineering in Portland, and Pedro Bartes producing and engineering in Seattle. Today we're looking forward to a conversation with Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. He is a professor at Multnomah University and Seminary here in the Portland area and author most recently of More Than Things, a personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. He'll join us later this Hour. We're also going to talk with Reverend Dean Nelson. He is the chair of the Douglas Leadership Institute and executive director of the pro-life advocacy group Human Coalition Action on Gavin Newsom's Senate appointment to replace the late Senator Dianne Feinstein. That's coming up later in the second hour of today's program. Well, the uh, Trump civil trial continued for a third day in New York City. The uh, former president, his family and his business empire are at stake with more witness testimony. It's uh, New York Attorney General Letitia James rather is seeking to make her case that the Trump organization fraudulently overvalued its assets. The court uh, reconvened this morning after New York Judge Arthur N. Gorin imposed a partial gag order preventing all parties from engaging in any verbal attacks against court staff after the former president criticized a member of the judge's office on social media. He added Tuesday afternoon that uh, personal attacks on members of his court staff were unacceptable and inappropriate. Without naming the former president, he was referring to a now-deleted Trump post on his Truth Social account about Ingoran's law clerk. Well, Tuesday's proceedings also featured continued testimony from Donald Bender, from the accounting firm Mazars USA LLP. His testimony focused on financial records dating back to 2011. The appellate division in Manhattan decided that uh, this summer the AG James uh, could no longer sue for allegedly for alleged transactions that occurred before uh, July 13, 2014 or February of 2016, depending on the defendant. Trump's defense objected over the statute of limitations for each document Bender was questioned on, but and Gorin maintained that they did not need to um, to do so. Instead, that the continuing objection was sufficient. Anyway, it continued in the courts. Well, the Trump um, uh, Trump laid uh, into what he referred to as the corrupt New York AG Letitia James uh, for being stuck um, off the campaign trail at, at the uh, fraud trial. This was uh, following the third day of his civil fraud trial. The former president laid into her in Manhattan uh, earlier today. After exiting the courtroom, he stopped to address members of the media waiting outside and lamenting being stuck at the uh, trial rather than campaigning for president. He accused the attorney general of coordinating with the Justice Department to keep him off the campaign trail and said, well, as you can expect, an awful lot. 
Meanwhile, the former president's legal team filed a, no- a notice of appeal on Wednesday concerning Judge Arthur N. Gorin's ruling last week that he and his co-defendants were liable for fraud. In his ruling, Ngoren said that Trump and the organization committed fraud while building his real estate empire by deceiving banks, insurers and others by overvaluing his assets and exaggerating his net worth on paper uh, used to uh, make deals and secure financing. The appeals was expected from Ngoren uh, after rather Ngoren on Tuesday said that the ongoing civil fraud trial was not going to be used to litigate his past rulings, but would focus on lawsuits from Democrat New York Attorney General Letitia James, and it continues. Well, Representative Matt Gates, the Republican out of Florida, is reacting to Representative Kevin McCarthy's ouster as House Speaker um, and his um, success that didn't apparently prepare for what next? Well, in his first appearance since being ousted from the House Speakership, Representative Kevin McCarthy told reporters this was last night that hardline Republicans led by the Representative Gates are not conservatives. They voted against one of the greatest cuts in history that Congress has ever voted for, $2 trillion. They voted against work requirements. They voted against uh, National Environmental Policy Act reform. They voted against border security. They don't get to say they're conservative because they're angry and they're chaotic, McCarthy said. Well, his comments came just hours after Gates introduced a motion to vacate McCarthy and succeeded with the help of hardliners in his party, eight of them, and 208 House Democrat votes. McCarthy said that he would not seek to be reelected as speaker. A new speaker should be chosen, if not later today, in the very short term. Meanwhile, Nikki Haley has definitively passed, rather surpassed, Ron DeSantis in the race for second place in the Republican New Hampshire primary, according to a new poll conducted by the second GOP debate. The former South Carolina governor has surged ahead of DeSantis, capturing 19 percent support among GOP primary voters in the Granite State, compared to DeSantis, 10 percent. That's according to a Suffolk University, Boston Globe, USA Today poll. However, the former President Trump is still dominating the field, racking up 49 percent support in the poll. Of the 500 likely New Hampshire Republican presidential primary voters polled, 48.4 percent believe that Trump's nomination is now inevitable. Now, that's 500 out of all of the Republican primary voters in the state. Well, since the first two Republican primary debates, Haley has been steadily gaining on her competitors. Following the first debate in August, Trump pollster Tony Fabrizio, he sent a memo to fundraisers and allies uh, of the former president obtained by Axios informing them that his interim polls had Haley and entrepreneur Vivek Ramaswamy catching up to DeSantis in New Hampshire. A different August poll from Public Opinion Strategies, which is aligned with the DeSantis campaign, confirmed that Haley was rising in Iowa after the debate. Well, the number of Republican uh, debates, uh, debate watchers rather, who said they were considering supporting Haley increased from 29 percent to 46 percent following the first debate, according to The Washington Post, 538 Ipsos initiative. Trump has apparently noticed Haley's post-debate momentum after largely ignoring his former U.N. ambassador since she entered the race. He attacked her as bird brain on Truth Social on Friday. Then am I in fifth grade again? I haven't heard the word bird brain since third, fourth grade. Uh, Then over the weekend, his campaign tried to um, antagonize her by sending a birdcage and seed to her office, to her hotel, rather, complete with a handwritten note, according to Haley's um, post on X. I'm sorry, it's just 
because they want to bring Barney back. We got a candidate calling another a bird brain. Will the grown-ups please come to the podium? Quick break. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You are listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Coming up in our next couple of segments, a conversation with Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger, author of More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. Well, a Wisconsin judge ruled this week that a Milwaukee area school district cannot engage in the social gender transitioning of its students without the consent of their parents. It's a key victory in the legal fight over parental rights in schools. So in a ruling on Tuesday, Circuit Judge Michael Maxwell um, in the county said that when children are questioning their gender identity, it is and undisputably a medical and health care issue. The judge prohibited the Kettle Moraine School District west of Milwaukee from allowing or requiring staff to refer to uh, students using the names or pronouns at odds with the student's biological sex while at school without express parental consent. Well, the ruling stems from a lawsuit. It was filed in November of 21 by the parents of a former middle school student who'd been struggling with her gender identity. District leaders refused the parents' request to continue referring to their daughter as a girl and by her real name. The district argued that parents do not have a fundamental right to control how a school educates their child. You might be surprised to learn that. But the judge agreed with the plaintiffs and two medical experts who argued that the issue was about medical treatment, not education. Of particular importance to note is that both doctors agree that living a double life where a child's gender roles are different at home and at school is inherently psychologically unhealthy and can undermine existing support structures for that child. Maxwell wrote in his ruling granting summary judgment for the plaintiffs. Well, the Colorado Supreme Court announced on Tuesday that its seven justices will hear the case of Christian baker Jack Phillips over his refusal to make gender transition cakes. I know you thought this uh, this case, this particular baker was probably out of the headlines, but apparently he's back. In the past decade, the owner of Masterpiece Cake Shop in Denver, Colorado, has been the target of three LGBT-related lawsuits, one of which was prompted by his refusal to bake a wedding cake for a same-sex couple in 2012. He won that free speech case uh, before the U.S. Supreme Court six years later. However, his dispute over the transgender-themed cake remains. The plaintiff, Autumn Scardina, I tried to order a pink cake with blue frosting to honor Scardina's gender transition on the same day in 2017 that the Supreme Court announced it would hear Phillips' appeal in the wedding cake case. Scardina later sued the baker. However, Phillips has a legal precedent for challenging Colorado's anti-discrimination law thanks to the Supreme Court's 303 Creative LLC versus Elenis ruling which disregarded the same law. In June, the high court decided that Lori Smith, a Christian web designer, also based in Colorado, could not be forced to create a wedding website for a same-sex couple that would violate her deeply held religious beliefs. It was the cake and not the couple that she declined. Well, since both Smith and Phillips' cases uh, bear close resemblance, an Alliance Defending Freedom attorney who represents Uh, Phillips said the 303 creative decision could strengthen their argument for free speech rights protected under the First Amendment. Free speech is for everyone, as the U.S. Supreme Court held in 303 creative. The government can't force artists to express messages they don't believe. That's a quote from the ADF senior counsel, Jake Warner, in a statement on Tuesday, because the attorney asked Jack to create a custom cake that would celebrate and symbolize a transition from male to female. The requested cake is speech under the First Amendment. 
The Colorado Supreme Court should apply 303 Creative to reverse the appeals court decision punishing Jack. You don't need to agree with Jack's views to agree that Americans should be com- shouldn't rather should not be compelled to express what they do not believe. Well, in January, a Colorado court of appeals three judge panel upheld a lower court decision requiring him to bake the cake. ADF attorneys for Phillips said at the time they plan to appeal that ruling, an effort that came through this week. Uh, we are grateful that the Colorado Supreme Court will hear Jack Phillips' case to hopefully uphold every Coloradan's uh, freedom to express what they believe, uh, the attorney Warner said, according to NBC News. Jack has been targeted for years by opponents of free speech, and as the U.S. Supreme Court recently held in 303 Creative versus Elenis, no one should be forced to express messages they disagree with. The hearing before Colorado's high court has no date yet, but the case's prosecution and defense will have to submit their legal arguments before that time. When will the question finally be answered and it will end? Well, former House Speaker Nancy Pelosi was evicted from her private Capitol office by the new Speaker Pro Tempore. House Speaker Pro Tempore Patrick McHenry, Republican out of North Carolina, he gave the order to Pelosi to vacate her Capitol hideaway on Wednesday. McHenry is a close ally of now former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy, who was ousted from his role on Tuesday. McHenry's eviction order was one of the congressman's first acts as top House lawmaker. Pelosi was notified of the eviction, first reported by Politico, in an email. The email said the former Speaker's hideaway was being assigned for Speaker's office use. Please vacate the space tomorrow. The room will be rekeyed, the email said. Well, the former Speaker moved out of her hideaway on Tuesday with help from the staff of House Minority Leader Hakeem Jeffries, according to a spokesperson for the former Speaker. Capital hideaways are a mainstay in the Senate, but are a luxury only afforded to a select few House members. Well, a Portland business owner spoke out against the city's spiraling homeless crisis accusing officials of failing a residence after the homeless filed suit against the city over a daytime campaign ban. A group of homeless Portland residents filed the class action lawsuit last week, claiming the new restrictions violate both the state law and the state constitution because they subject vagrants to unreasonable punishments, according to the Oregonian. Well, Kurt Hudson owns a company in the city, and he joined um, uh, Fox and Friends first, on Tuesday to discuss why he believes officials have abdicated their duties and why he's not surprised by the lawsuit as crime and drugs continue to run rampant. I'm not shocked by this from an aspect that the city has failed the homeless here, just like it failed businesses and everybody else. Uh, He was uh, speaking on Tuesday. There's a lot of people out there who need help, and the city has dropped the ball from day one. City leadership has abdicated their duties here in Portland, and you see it every day, end quote. Well, his remarks come as Oregon City Commissioner and Public Safety uh, Renee Gonzalez uh, issued a statement on X warning residents against calling the city's 911 system unless it is a matter of life or death. Our 911 system is getting hammered this morning with a multiple person incident, multiple overdoses in northwest park blocks, he said. Uh, Please do not call 911 except uh, in the event of life or death emergencies or crime in progress or a chance of apprehending a suspect. Well, Hudson blamed the city's strained resources on officials in action in dealing with the surge in drugs, crime and homelessness. The Portland leadership has let us down for two, two and a half, three years at this point, Hudson went on to say. Their inaction early on allowed this to build and build and build, and we're just seeing more and more of it. 
and it's just putting a stress on business, on families, on everyone. There were 2,930,911 overdose calls recorded in Multnomah County. Apparently that was 2,930 911 calls. I have too many numbers all together in Multnomah County between January and June of this year, according to an independent study from the Lund report. Portland police announced last week that 10 kids with one as young as one year old have overdosed on suspected fentanyl since June alone. Half of the incidents were deadly. Hmm. Well, the majority of Americans place their trust in Republicans to handle the economy and national security. Uh, A majority of Americans say Republicans will do a better job bolstering the economy, given the party its widest lead over Democrats on that metric in three decades. That's according to a new Gallup poll. Americans trusted Republicans on the economy rather more than Democrats by 14 points. The widest gap the GOP has enjoyed since 1991. Well, the poll shows 53 percent said that they would do a better job on the economy, while 39 percent chose Democrats. The results illustrate the obstacle President Biden faces campaigning for the second term in which uh, concerns over inflation and jobs are persistently top issues. The poll found that nearly two thirds to uh, rather three fourths of Americans feel pessimistic about the economy. A slightly larger majority at 57 percent have greater faith in the Republican Party to protect the country from international terrorism and military threats, while 35 percent favor the Democrats. Now, how meaningful are these polls? Well, uh, there was supposed to be a landslide victory among Republicans in the midterm elections that did not materialize. So it's an interesting snapshot at this particular moment, but may tell us very little about what the future holds. Hey, you're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Up next, a conversation with a professor and Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger, author most recently of More Than Things, a personalist ethic for a throwaway culture. We'll be back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, as promised, I have an ex- a distinguished guest in studio with me, so I'm excited to introduce him and his new book to you. Uh, he makes the point in the book that we live in a culture of commodification. People are too often defined by what they do or what they own. Uh, they're treated as a means to an end, as cogs in a machine. And what goes missing is a deep sense of personhood. And he helps us to rethink uh, the subject of the value of the person in his uh, in his book, More Than Things, the personist, personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. Well, Dr. Paul Metzger is uh, King's College London, Ph.D., is a professor of Christian theology and theology of culture at Multnomah University and Seminary and director of the Institute for Cultural Engagement, New Wine, New Wineskins here in the Portland area. He is the author of numerous books, including Consuming Jesus, Beyond Race and Class Divisions in a Consumer Church and Connecting Christ, How to Discuss Jesus in a World of Diverse Paths. And he's the co-editor of A World for All, Global Civil Society in political theory and Trinitarian theology. That was a mouthful. I'm just <laughs> delighted to have you here to talk about your latest book. Welcome back. It's been a while. Georgine, thanks so much. It's always a pleasure and a privilege to dialogue with you. So thanks so much for the opportunity. 
Well, in More Than Things, you present a personalist moral vision and moral compass for leading us from a culture of things in which we are commodities to a culture of persons. And in the book, you emphasize the inherent value of persons. Let's begin by defining personalism and personalist ethics so we can start with some understanding. Mm -hmm. Uh, Thank you, Georgine. So when when one is thinking about uh, personalism, uh, one has in mind such things as that we are embodied as human beings. We're not brains on a stick. We're embodied creatures. Uh, We have individuality as uh, as persons, but we're also individuals in relationship. So these are just some of the components. We're not, you know, no man, no person, no woman is an island unto themselves. We are who we are in relation, yet we also have individual agency. We're embodied, but there's also consciousness and self-consciousness. I think of the, you know, my dog. I have a Shiba Inu and my dog, you know, does Kenta have consciousness? Does he have self-consciousness? You know, does a bat have self-consciousness? Well, humans have self-consciousness. Uh, so we we can be self-reflective, being self-aware, but also aware of others. So these are some of the components with personalism. And then when we bring in our Christian faith, uh, the Christian faith teaches that God is three eternal persons in communion, three divine persons, Father, Son, and Spirit in eternal communion. So the very being of God at the core of God's being is not simply a divine essence, but also three divine persons. So the core of our identity is bound up with being created in the image of the triune God. And what difference does that make? That we at the core of God's being is a father, heavenly father, Abba father, and his son, Jesus, in the spirit who's also personal. And that invites us not to treat one another as things, but as persons where we have invaluable um, worth. And so with personhood comes dignity with personalism. And so the idea that everyone has inherent dignity. My son, who experienced a traumatic brain injury a few years ago, I start out the book talking about how Mm -hmm. I look to see how his caregivers treat him. He's minimally conscious, and whether he was conscious or not, to see that they treat him with inherent dignity, that each human has a worth that is unfathomable as mysteries, because again, we cannot be minimized, we cannot be objectified as creating the image of God. So that's at the core of personalism, and that leads to a personalist ethics that I should never treat someone as a mere means to my own ends, that I would use them. You know, we're always benefiting from one another. When I go to the store, I benefit from the cashier selling me a product, but they are more than being mm-hmm. a cashier. They're, they're a person. So I dare not use them, even if they are helping me and they are meaningful to me in terms of what they're doing. They have far more worth that cannot be put uh, looked upon with a price tag or what have you. That, as Michael Sandel said in his book, um, What Money Can't Buy, The Moral Limits of Markets, that uh, a market economy is one thing, or a market economy is one thing. He thinks it's a good thing. But a market society where the only thing that has value is what a price tagging people. He says that is the line we must not cross yeah. over. Yeah. It's interesting because I, I found this book compelling because I am the, the caregiver for my mother. Mm. She's 92 years old. And she and I have this sort of conversation on a regular basis, reminding of her of her inherent value, despite the fact that she is physically unable to do much of what she did as a younger woman, that her cognition isn't the same as it was when she was a younger woman. And rehearsing her value 
um, as she is at this very moment and how she might be in the future is a subject that we've talked a lot about. And this runs, it seems to me, counter-cultural. Absolutely. Uh, this isn't what our culture says to us. We are, in fact, valued according to, as we mentioned in the introduction, what we can do, what we can offer, how we look, what we have to bring to the table. Yeah, and with that, uh, when I'm talking to my students in class, even this morning, you know, how we introduce ourselves to one another. Um, you know, some of my indigenous cultural friends, they introduce themselves based on their relationship to their tribe. I so often introduce myself by what I do, and there's nothing wrong with that. But what happens if I lose my job? What mm-hmm. happens if I have, you know, some kind of tragic incident? My worth doesn't go out the window with that. And I think so often in our culture, if we're not doing something or if we're not benefiting the GNP, GNP is a good thing. But if we're not benefiting in some way, then we've lost our value. And I think elderly people, people with disabilities or alternative abilities, however we want to articulate that, uh, you know, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. There is that sense of vulnerability that's increasing. So whether it's my son, your mother, uh, it's it's a huge issue. And we all face this in different ways at different times of the day. You know, where does our meaning and our value mm-hmm. come from? And that's where personalist ethics comes into play. It's about the significance of the person at the core of reality. God is personal. We are personal, creating the image of God. And we must treat one another in a personalized manner, not an impersonal manner. We None of us want to be treated as things, but it's very difficult for us to treat one another as persons. Yeah, yeah. In your first chapter, you write about the pervasive loss of personhood and what you call missing persons. Can you explain what that what that means, this, this notion of missing persons, and what's at stake if we fail to recognize the inherent value of each other? Hmm. Uh, so I, I make use of pop culture in the first chapter. So there are certain uh, TV series and movies out there like the, the TV series Ozark um, in Netflix mm-hmm. where – you know, it might seem like obvious, but it's it's just striking that Hollywood and, and company gets this at times, whether they live into it. But, you know, a drug lord says to Wendy, uh, one of the main figures, you know, and she says, we're business partners. He says, Wendy, we're not business partners. I own you, Wendy. And it's like, I think everyone gets it. Like, whoa, that's intense. And that's that's not a good thing. Or the movie Her, where he falls in love with his voice activated operating system, uh, Joaquin Phoenix. And just how he's processing life and he's kind of he's becoming reduced to the company that's uploading his demographics and his values and his appetites as he's falling in love with this voice on this operating system. Then finally it disappears. But but you think what's lost there? Um, Is there someone that was lost in that process? It's one thing for a thing to be treated as a person. It's another thing for a person to be treated as a thing. And then. Air Jordans, uh, where kids would in the past kill one another for Mm -hmm. a pair of Air Jordans. And Macklemore in his song Wings says, you know, we are what we wear, we wear what we are. And so when we reduce people to things, I think we cheapen our identity. That to me is the real issue. It's, It's a cheapening of God's creation. It's a cheapening of ourselves where, as Pope Francis said, it's a throwaway culture. And he was talking about in relationship to abortion, he said, it's a throwaway culture today. And I think that can be extended in so many other areas. The elderly, you know, what worth do they have? Well, their worth is not bound up with, as I said before, what they contribute to the GNP. It's inherent. And a little baby and an elderly person has so much worth and value beyond what can be 
commodified yeah. or what have you. So, I mean, I think it's just no one wants to be cheapened. And that's the idea. And so often, again, Hollywood gets at it. And how often do we get at it? So often I hear people talking about, you know, in church, people are giving units. Well, we might be able to look at people as giving units in one sense, but no, they're the bride of Christ. They're the body of Christ, the temple of the Holy Spirit. We we must not let that enter into the life of the church. Yeah, it's not way. just a matter of semantics. I mean, it can yeah. change your, your oh, orientation. Absolutely. You're thinking about the people you're ministering to and the people you're ministering alongside. Yeah, just, just one last example. Driving down the road one day, I was going somewhere for an interview for the book, and someone cut me off, and I said to myself, Paul, Look at them as a person. Don't you know they're behind metal and glass, but don't cheapen them. Don't cheapen them. It kind of helped me. I, I pulled back on it and I was ready for the equivalent of road rage, but I thought, no, no, they're persons. Don't reduce them. Don't re-. We're talking with uh, Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger, his latest book, More Than Things A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. We're going to take a quick break, but we will be back to continue our conversation. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. Is aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. I'm continuing my conversation with Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. He is the author of several books, but today we're talking about his latest, More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. Currently available? Yes, currently available at all major book chains and local distributors as well, I would assume. <laughs> all I think the, the, ones. the subject is certainly relevant to all of us, especially at this time in, in our culture. But to whom did you write the book? Hmm. Well, I, it took about 13 years uh, to write it uh, off and on. And, uh, you know, the last couple of years, it took on even more mm-hmm. weightiness and significance. But I, I really wrote it for the church um, actually, the society at large. I mean, it's an academic book, but it has import for people of all walks of life. So, uh, again, it's a it's it's framed by way of personalist ethics and philosophy, theology, but the themes are what we deal with on the evening news and in daily life at every at every turn. So, yeah, academics, so like students, college, my students at Multnomah University and seminary, um, PhDs, but. The common person, uh, and I'm pretty common myself. So, well, I like to be challenged, and I, I think for most of us, it's good to pick something up that's going to challenge us, especially if it's relevant to the challenges we face in general uh, today. So, I would recommend it certainly on that point. I, I should point out that in the book, you pursue and apply a personalist framework to 10 challenging ethical issues that we're currently facing among them, and it, it's a wide ranging list of things, some unexpected. The beginning of life, for example, abortion, genetic engineering, not surprising there, euthanasia, racism, immigration reform, drone warfare, environmental care. And space exploration make that list as well. Again, very broad ranging, but really relevant, more so than you might have thought when you started the book 13 years ago. Right, right. Uh, some of these subjects would ma- maybe wouldn't have made the cut as mm-hmm. they did today. Yes, and space exploration, I think that throws people, and you know, I was probably picking up on Star Trek, you know, the last uh, frontier or what have you with space, and I call it the last ethical frontier. But we can learn a lot about our views of ourselves and our world based on thinking about space exploration. So if I can only take 100 people on a spacecraft, I have a, uh, a reader's guide that I make available. It's free online through the publisher, InterVarsity Academic. It's on the website page for more than things. And so it's a 75, 76-page free download guide. But I ask in the case study for that chapter, I, and I ask my students, so if you can only bring 100 people with you, there's one spaceship that you could take 
into space, who would be the people that would go on there? Would it be only the the wealthy, the brilliant, you know, the scientists, the you know, the Elon Musks or the Stephen Hawkins or or what have you? Or would you would you bring people on there who have disabilities? Um, and you know, would you bring the poor on? Because mm-hmm. you know, so often the poorer we're told, we read studies about how they know what it's like to be at a loss. They give less, you know, numbers wise, but percentage wise, they might give more. They kind of have a better empathic understanding of compassion. It's not like Gordon Gecko greed is good. And while there are many rich people who are very giving and great philanthropists, I think there's something about the poor. You know, mm-hmm. that, you know, that we could learn something from them in outer space or people with disabilities where it's like they've had to learn how to adapt without much in terms of skill sets by way of like a handicap. I mean, you know, mm-hmm. per se, and they can teach us on how to adapt and have successful adaptation in outer space. So the ethics that come through in all the previous nine chapters make a turnaround in the last chapter in so many ways with space exploration, the last ethical frontier. So beginning of life to the end of life from the state to across the globe and outer space, I was trying to really, in a sense with these 10 case studies, um, provide a macro perspective on a variety of pressing ethical issues from a personalist vantage point. I think it really reveals how we actually think. You pose a question like that, and we immediately begin to think about the people we would include and why. What utility do they bring to this sort of a setting? And you challenge us to think, well, maybe I've underestimated the value of someone who doesn't bring a certain set of skills, but brings an entirely different set that would be uh, valuable in this situation. And then it reminds me that perhaps that's true in my workplace, or maybe Mm -hmm. that might be true when I'm thinking about taking a trip and collecting people to bring with me. So it challenges us, even those of us who think we're pretty good in this area, uh, to think more deeply about what we're overlooking, who we're overlooking. Absolutely. And Paul in 1 Corinthians 11 talks about those we tend to treat or view as having less significance, they're indispensable in terms of the, the body of Christ, whoever that might be. It could be those with, quote-unquote, disabilities, what maybe should be called alternative abilities, and how they adapt. You know, we we tend to miss those that are right before us, they have so much to teach us. Mm-hmm. And Jesus said, let the little children come unto me. Jesus understood that they had incredible significance and worth. They weren't half humans as they were seen in his day. He treated them as fully human and the ones that teach us most about the kingdom of God. Mm. You write that we need to work hard to account for one another's personhood. Now, how might we do that, particularly in a world, as we've been discussing, that's dominated by the perception of people as things or the commodification of people? And what role does community, as you put it, the relational structure play in that effort? So um, in the midst of everything we're going through with our family, with my son's traumatic brain injury, uh, one of the things that I'm having to learn more and more is self-management skills, um, emotional intelligence. And uh, I have to make sure I'm making points, not making enemies as I advocate for my son in a variety Mm -hmm. of spheres. And there's a pastor I go to a lot, Pastor Tom Shive, Gateway Church in Portland, uh, who's, I I say, Tom, I need some EQ time with you this morning. Help me out. And, you know, one of the things that Tom helped me think through is like, if I'm having a struggle with someone. So it's that matter of I need other people, um, you know, in the body of Christ and beyond to help me live into the very values I have. We can't do it alone. We're not individuals in isolation. So one of the things Tom said to me is, okay, you might see someone's weaknesses in your, in, and you can easily fixate on them and reduce them to those challenges. What about 
focusing on the things that you see in them that are good. And where you see an area of lack, Paul, why don't you actually pray for them in that area? And it's like, I mean, it's so simple, Mm -hmm. but I can't get myself out of the brown paper bag that I, you know, often put on my, you know, it's just that I'm so fixated and I can reduce people. And Paul in Philippians 4 says, whatever is true, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, think about such things. So as much as I know about these themes, and I've been studying them for a very long time and writing on them in various contexts, I need other people to help remind me of them, both in terms of their lived experience, like your mom's teaching you, like my son's teaching me, like the caregivers who treat him with such care, and this pastor who I can call up and I think, if it weren't for Tom or other people, I would have just blown it by now with everything we're going through. So I just think we need to see that we're not islands unto ourselves, mm-hmm. and we need one another to really help us take one another seriously. As C.S. Lewis says, we've never met a mere mortal. Uh, and so I need others to help me see that people are more than mere mortals, uh, as he says in Weight of Glory. Mm. Imagine, if you will, for just a moment, and perhaps we don't have to imagine too much, what would would the would world be like if we didn't um, see others as having value? Mm. I mean, what's at stake here if we fail to embrace what you're writing about here, not only in the 10 areas that you focus on, but in general, if we fail to recognize the value of one another and we see each other uh, by virtue of our utility and we um, accept this, embrace this notion of commodification of, of people, what's at stake? What do we lose? Well, I think we lose everything. I mean, you know, if we're talking about what is meaningful and what's valuable, I just think I become an empty carcass when, you know, if it's simply about a career, if it's simply about um my bank account, if it's simply about those things. And it's not to say they don't have importance, but they pale in comparison Mm -hmm. to what really counts. Jesus said, people were not made for the Sabbath. The Sabbath was made for people. And so when we don't play out this with seeing the inherent significance of people, that people are made for more than things, when we start reducing one another to things, we actually start turning one another into demons of hell. And uh, screw tape Letters, another C.S. Lewis book where he says, you know, our enemy, God, if I could just go into this for one second, you know, our, and we can come back to this, but our enemy, God, treats people as having value. Our master, the devil, consumes people and makes them an extension of himself. So I think we end up becoming demonic reductions of what God calls us to be as more than the angels creating the image of God in Jesus. Mm. We're talking with Dr. Paul Metzger, his book, More Than Things. We've got news coming up at the top of the hour, but he's consented to stay with us for a few more minutes, so you do the same. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the second hour of the Georgine Rice Show. Glad to have you with us. James Blend producing... Dave King Engineering, Pedro Bartez, producing and engineering in Seattle. I'm continuing a conversation I began in our first hour with Dr. Paul Lewis Metzger. He is the author most recently of More Than Things, a personalist ethics for a throwaway culture. We live in a culture of commodification, and he's urging us to consider the value that each one of us possesses, regardless of our socioeconomic status, our abilities, and all of the other things that we might uh, look to to um, evaluate uh, one another. Now, in, in the book, your personalist moral vision rests on the Christian ideals of faith, of hope, 
and love. How does this moral compass help us navigate through some of the more pressing issues that we face? Issues that I might add you address in the book. There are 10 uh, areas in which you specifically apply these these principles to. Mm-hmm. So, you know, 1 Corinthians 13, faith, hope, and love, uh, and the greatest of these is love. But um, I, I frame it both in terms of what I'll call a vertical dimension and a horizontal dimension. Uh, the triune God, Father, Son, and Spirit uh, exists in eternal community, and that's the ground of faith. So it's the it's the creedal formation that we have as Christians going back to the church fathers uh, and the and the scriptures that you know the triune God is the ground of faith. So it's not simply my faith in God; it's the divine subject who shapes and grounds mm-hmm. our faith. And so when we think of that, for example. I think of the people of Israel, and again, it's it's there with Exodus three, where uh, God comes to Moses and says, "I'm sending you to Egypt to tell Pharaoh, let my people go." And you know that idea of the Lord, who are you? Tell me who who has sent uh, me. They're going to ask, and He says, "Tell them the Lord, I am who I am. I will be who I will be." I'm, and that's God's covenant name, the Lord. And we see this in the New Testament. If if you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord. Paul's picking up on that. And it's it's not simply a title, it's a name. It's God's covenantal name. And so that that God, a named God, is the object of our faith. It's not pie in the sky. It's not uh, subjectivism. There's a, a ground, a transcendent, what we'd call a transcendent ground, someone beyond us that is shaping our lives. And so that 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 ground of faith as God who is personal— says to Pharaoh, let my people go. Pharaoh says, who's the Lord that I should let Israel go? But, you know, they take that seriously. It's a named God and a named people. And as a friend of mine, Kendall Solon, has said, a nameless people and a nameless God can easily be commodified, but a named God and a named people cannot be easily commodified. And so that theme of faith and the ground of our faith, but there's also uh, a horizontal dimension of faith that we look through a glass dimly, Paul says, then we shall look face to face. Mm. So there's a sense in which, you know, I, I have the scriptures that ground my faith. I have this belief in the triune God, but I still don't always see things accurately. So I, I better have humility. Hopefully I'm growing in humility that, you know, I don't always see things with um, crystal clear vision. So I need to be in dialogue with others as we try to understand how to live well and then hope uh, it was Martin Luther King Jr. in his uh, sermons toward the end of his life who said, you know, it looks grim with the, 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 the battle for the civil rights campaign. He says, the arc of the moral universe is long, though, and it bends toward justice. So we might think that all is for naught, but he says, while it seems dim, the moral arc or the arc of the moral universe is long, meaning that we can't always, but he had that hope, but it bends toward justice. So God is our hope, the Trinitarian God, Father, Son, and Spirit, that we will not be disappointed in the end. God will wipe away every tear, and that keeps us from giving in. Maybe maybe we're not taken seriously in really important claims. Maybe people mock those claims. But the matter is, we're not ultimately doing it based on success, but faithfulness, knowing that God is our hope, and God will sustain us and strengthen us. Do not give up on the battle before us to seek to live, to honor God with all our hearts, so might strengthen our neighbors ourselves. And then also with hope, just this idea on the horizontal front that, again, there's always this sense that we live as creatures with a telos, with a direction, with an orientation. And that's not just Christians, but as Christians, our our hope is centered in Jesus Christ. Mm-hmm. And so that has to shape 
my ethical vision. And then lastly, love. It's an embodied ethic. You know, Jesus says uh, everyone loves their friends. Everyone loves those who love them. But God calls to love our enemies. Be holy like God is holy means to love our enemies. That's the kind of love that God has to love our enemies um, and to pray for those who persecute us. Or as Luther says, and another from another vantage point, Martin Luther, the reformer, the, the gospel, and this is the heart of the gospel, uh, he says that it's it's not our attractiveness that creates God's love. It's God's love that creates our attractiveness. And I think that's the gospel and that kind of love that loves the unlovely. And we're the unlovely through sin that God says, I'm going to make this ruined masterpiece to transform this ruined masterpiece of the fall to be a true masterpiece with all the glory because God doesn't see us as what we've made of ourselves, but God in his infinite love continues to love us with that undying affection. So that shapes um, what I'm trying to get at in the book as well. Mm. Again, we're talking about the book, More Than Things, A Personalist Ethics for a Throwaway Culture. The book is published by InterVarsity Press. And I have to confess, one of the frustrating things about doing what I do is there's never enough time to cover as much as I'd like, and certainly to give our listeners a taste of all that's in your book. It's it's amazing. Uh, I do want to ask you just very quickly, how can we pray for your son? He's a husband. He's a father. He's had the traumatic brain injury. How can we pray for your son and your family that care for him? Thank you, Georgine. And thank you uh, for the listeners to pray for Christopher and his wife's name is Kian and their daughter's Jayla. We're praying for his consciousness to be restored as a palliative care specialist from OHSU has shared with us. Uh, the probabilities are slim, but the possibilities are real for meaningful recovery. And this is 2.5 years in, but we're praying for consciousness, full consciousness, somehow by God's grace to return. We're praying for his wife and daughter to be sustained. And we've been Mm -hmm. so grateful for the community of supporting us. And um, I write about him all the time, you know, for Christopher Metzger as his dad. And uh, just thank you for your prayers. And uh, we're we're thankful for the caregivers and all the people who care. Well, we'll continue to pray for, uh, for him you. and for your family. Dr. Metzger, thanks so much for joining us. Thanks so us. much, Georgine. Once again, More Than Things, published by InterVarsity Press. Up next, we're going to talk with Reverend Dean Nelson. He's the chair of the Douglas uh, Leadership Institute. We're going to talk about uh, Governor Gavin Newsom's Senate appointment to replace Senator Dianne Feinstein, who passed away last week. We'll be back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to the Georgine Rice Show. Well, as you may know, California Governor Gavin Newsom has chosen LaFonza Butler, the president of Emily's List, to fill the seat of the late Democratic Senator Dianne Feinstein. Feinstein was the longest serving woman in the Senate. She died on Thursday at the age of 90. Well, in California, the governor has the power to appoint a senator to serve until the next regularly scheduled statewide general election. That means that Butler will serve until the next senator, whom voters will choose in November 2024's election. And that senator is sworn in. She has led Emily's List, which works to elect Democratic women to support abortion rights since 2021. Well, reactions have been varied. Uh, Mine has certainly not been favorable, but um, Gavin Newsom's pick for the interim California senator has generated quite a bit of of talk. Well, Reverend Dean Nelson, who's a pro-life and conservative analyst, uh, joins us to talk about that appointment. He chairs the Douglas Leadership Institute and is executive director of the pro-life advocacy group Human Coalition Action. 
to talk about this rather controversial and troubling appointment. Thank you so much for joining us. Oh, listen, thank you so much, Georgine, for the opportunity to be here on this important matter. I gave just a very brief description of uh, this now sitting senator from California, appointed by Gavin Newsom. What can you tell us about her and why should we find this troubling? Well, number one, uh, we should find it troubling because anytime we have, in my opinion, white liberals that try to cherry pick black people that don't represent the real values of the African-American community and force certain things down uh, our throats, uh, to me, that's that's troubling. As you stated, uh, her main level of success is she's the head of Emily's List which is obviously one of the largest political action committees that seeks to uh, raise and uh, appoint and um, support uh, those who are pro-abortion. Most of the people I'm sure in your listening audience know uh, the disproportionate impact that abortion has had on the African-American community. And I believe that that, number one, is uh, is reason for us to be extremely concerned. Secondarily, um, she, you know, one of the polls that I have read shows that African Americans are kind of the leading group that are extremely concerned about um, transgender LGBTQ in the classroom. And uh, she certainly, uh, because of her, the lifestyle that she's chosen, has been a strong advocate of the LGBTQ community. And I believe that that is also something troubling. And the last thing that I'll mention. The only thing that they can point to of success was really that she served on Kamala Harris's uh, presidential bid. And uh, we all know how uh, how that that turned out, which in by anybody's stretch was a fail. So I think that there are a host of reasons to see that this is strictly a political appointment and not really with great concern for the people of California. Yeah, yeah. Well, I, too, am an African-American. I've been working pro-life issues here in this state for quite some time. I read with interest an article in the L.A. Times where a um, a, a Democrat who is describes himself as a progressive liberal blasted Democrats in general, uh, not just the governor, but also the president for making these announcements about uh, appointing black women as though there was some quid pro quo, that there was a need for uh, these announcements to be made, first of all, for their own political advantage, but then um, as if um, these women wouldn't be qualified based on their own merit. So it is frustrating, and it even angered this liberal columnist in the L.A. Times. Well, you know, we don't usually agree with people that are writing in the L.A. Times, but I'm glad that there are emerging Democrats that are willing to at least speak the truth on matters like this, particularly when you're talking about someone who is going to serve, uh, you know, the state of California in one of the highest positions. Uh, probably should have started by just offering, uh, you know, uh, prayers for, uh, you know, former Senator Dianne Feinstein's family, uh, because we do take seriously people who do serve. And um, when they pass, uh, you know, it's uh, it's an opportunity to at least, you know, think about, you know, who they were and to, to provide a blessing. Not that I agreed with any of her policies for the most part, but all that being said, it is another example in my my opinion of how white uh, progressives will cherry pick uh, people that they want to advance their agenda and put a black face on it. And I think that we as African-Americans should do better to uh, challenge them to have people that have uh, that better represent us mm-hmm. and people that have experience. 
I know that in the state of Ohio just recently, a group of 100 African-American pastors are urging the community there not to support an initiative that would broaden the access to abortion, pointing out how it has devastated the African-American community. And that is by design. That was Margaret Sam- Sanger's dream. And that's what Planned Parenthood and other organizations have done. Emily's List, the organization that Newsom's appointee, now Senator LaFonza Butler, has uh, headed for quite some time. Their primary goal was to promote women, um, Democratic women, who support abortion rights. And she's been in that position since 2021. Well, you know, we see the same thing with Planned Parenthood. They, they are strategic in what they're trying to do by appointing black women to support something that the, that the majority of African-Americans do not support. In fact, most Americans do not support uh, abortion on demand for any reason at any time. Uh, most Americans, as polls show, would support some type of limits on abortion. But that's not Emily's List plan. That's not Planned Parenthood's plan. And some of your listeners will remember that in 1939, uh, Margaret Sanger wrote that letter to Clarence Gamble that we don't want word to go out, that we want to exterminate the Negro population. She would then connect with ministers, as you mentioned about Mm -hmm. Ohio. She would then connect with ministers and basically state they could help in their efforts. And so I was proud to see uh, that 100 uh, list of pastors in Ohio that are speaking out. I was proud for uh, our leader in Ohio, uh, Reverend Arnold Culbreth, who was one of the uh, pro-life leaders in the state who uh, who was also a signer on. And we're prayerful that we will have more uh, African-Americans of uh, conscience and goodwill that will stand up for the protection of, uh, of all human beings, even uh, pre-born human beings. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you are, as I mentioned, um, the executive director of the pro-life advocacy group Human Coalition Action. Tell us a bit about what you all uh, are about. Yeah, so Human Coalition Action started uh, kind of as the second uh, iteration of Human Coalition, which uh, exists to make abortion unthinkable and unnecessary. And so with Human Coalition Action, we uh, primarily do advocacy work um, around the country trying to get states to uh, adopt uh, pro-life measures. One of the things that makes us different and unique is that we do not just offer legislation that limits abortion, but we also offer uh, legislation that helps to support women. Many people after the uh, uh, Texas uh, instituted uh, two years ago, their uh, six-week ban, most people didn't realize that they also increased by $200,000, uh, excuse me, $200 million um, uh, dedicated to uh, pro-life causes and helping to support women uh, in need. And that's one of the things that Human Coalition does around the country. We know that 76% of women who come through our doors, and we've engaged with hundreds of thousands of women over our history, 76% of those women say they would choose to parent if their circumstances mm-hmm. were different. And so part of our role is trying to help women who are in those difficult situations and providing legislative opportunities uh, in states that see that as an important uh, goal. Well, Reverend Nelson, we appreciate your leadership in that regard and for taking the time to talk with us about this uh, most recent appointment. We certainly will continue to pray that somehow, given the, the challenges we face, that God would penetrate the hearts of those decision makers. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you so much for giving us the opportunity. God bless you. God bless you. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Quick break and we'll continue. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, welcome back. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. Well, Senator Ted Cruz is quizzing the Transportation Security Administration, or TSA, 
over the ongoing deployment of air marshals to the southern border, asking why marshals are being sent to deal with the migrant surge instead of being on U.S. flights. Well, it's concerning, he says, that the administration has prioritized ushering illegal immigrants into the country over protecting the lives and safety of the traveling public. The uh, Republican out of Texas said in a letter to the TSA administrator, David uh, Pekuski, well, air marshals were initially sought to go to the southern border last year on a voluntary basis, but that later changed to mandatory deployments, sparking outrage and a mutiny from marshals. Well, the air marshals became one of the number of law enforcement groups who ended up deployed to the besieged southern border as the migrant crisis escalated to historic levels. Well, House Majority Leader um, Steve Scalise is seeking support to replace former House Speaker Kevin McCarthy. He was removed, as you know, in a narrow vote earlier on Tuesday. Sources familiar with the situation said Scalise has been uh, making calls behind the scenes to shore up support ahead of a possible vote today to select the new speaker. Representative Matt Gates, who introduced the notion, the motion rather, to vacate against McCarthy, that ultimately led to his removal, told reporters Tuesday afternoon that Scalise would be a phenomenal speaker. McCarthy was temporarily replaced by Representative Patrick McHenry, the new speaker pro tempore of the House, who will preside over the chamber until a new speaker is elected. Representative Greg Murphy said the plan was to have a candidate forum uh, on Tuesday and a vote on who would succeed McCarthy on Wednesday. We'll see if they can pull that off. Well, a bipartisan group of black pastors in Ohio released a letter Tuesday calling on voters to oppose a November measure that would enshrine abortion abortion access in the state constitution and specifically pointed to the negative impact they say abortion has has had on the black community. And it has. As black faith community leaders across Ohio who are called to care for God's people, we urge our fellow Christians, the black community, and all Ohioans who believe in the inherent value of every person to vote no on issue one this November. That was the open letter signed by more than 100 faith leaders, and they were all African-American. The future of our state, our society, and our race is at stake in this amendment, and we must protect them. The bipartisan group explained in the letter its message is not about political ideology or party line vote. The faith leaders outlined their arguments that the black community has been especially hit hard by abortion. Margaret Sanger would have been pleased. This is a moral issue and for black community in particular. It's a life or death matter. The letter states only 13 percent of Ohio's black uh, population is black. Yet 48 percent of the abortions undergone by residents of the state are performed on black women. A tragic and difficult reality that our community cannot ignore even more alarming is the number of black children 20 million who were killed in the womb between 1973 and the overturn of roe versus wade by the supreme court last june that is enough to fill ohio stadium more than 194 times they went on the black community has been the target of the abortion industry for decades beginning with the deplorable ideology of racist eugenicist margaret sanger whose Planned Parenthood organization purposefully established abortion mills in minority neighborhoods and targeted our communities for abortions. Sanger's mission was to kill black babies before they entered the world, and Planned Parenthood and the for-profit abortion industry have allowed that mission to continue to this very day, end quote. Well, the faith leaders call for the abortion industry to account for uh, its darkest history and depraved legacy, but in the meantime, asks for voters to refuse to allow the continued promotion of an agenda driven by racism and greed. Kudos to those uh, African-American leaders who spoke up. 
And uh, every word they penned, every word they said is absolutely true. Well, the official X account of the Democratic Party received a wave of mockery on Tuesday after sharing an image it thought portrayed the president as, well, looking cool. While attempting to make a pop culture reference, the Democrat Party posted a photo of the president wearing his classic aviator sunglasses while standing in front of the White House. Along with the image, the account shared a quote referencing a line from Mean Girls, the 2004 high school comedy film starring Lindsay Lohan. President at Joe Biden isn't a regular president. He's a cool president. Hashtag Mean Girls Day, the account posted. October 3rd is uh, referred to as Mean Girls Day. Why on earth? I couldn't tell you. It's because of a line in the movie when Lindsay Lohan's character gets excited about her crush and the fact that he spoke to her. He asks what a day it was, and she responded, it's October 3rd. The caption used in the Biden Post referenced another widely quoted line as well from the movie. Well, social media users, however, were not impressed by the Democrats trying to make fetch happen, which is apparently a line from the uh, the film. I keep forgetting, you know, as an adult, I need to refer back to childish things in order to be able to function and interpret what's going on in the world. Thinking about Barney, of course. Well, an L.A. Times journalist, a columnist, if you will, blasted Democrats who pledged to appoint black women to score political points with the public, scorning this maneuver as a manipulative electoral quid pro quo that makes these women look unqualified to earn their place. Journalist L.Z. Granderson scathing remarks came in response to California's Democratic Governor Gavin Newsom announcing Sunday that he would appoint Democratic strategist LaFonza Butler to the Senate after Senator Dianne Feinstein passed away, fulfilling an earlier promise to pick a black woman to fill any Senate vacancy. Granderson noted President Biden. He'd made similar promises, both in picking Kamala Harris as his running mate and appointing Judge Ketanji Brown Jackson to the Supreme Court. The liberal columnists argue that Butler's credentials as a former union leader and presidential president rather of Emily's list was impressive enough to earn her a place in the higher office. And Democratic men should stop making these pledges. But can Democratic men now stop pledging to pick black women as though they are a charity in need of matching contributions? Black women have never needed an electoral quid pro quo. A vote for me and I'll appoint one sort of thing, he wrote an L.A. Times opinion piece published on Tuesday. Instead of appointments, he argued that Democratic Party, they needed to do more work getting these women on the ballot. Again, kudos. A member of the Democratic National Committee told the Wall Street Journal that Democrats should nominate a different candidate in 2024 and sounded the alarm on Democrats' private concerns over Biden's candidacy. I wanted to see Bidenism continue, but... I think the best way to make sure that happens is to perhaps have a different candidate than Joe Biden, a member of the DNC said, according to the Wall Street Journal. It would be irresponsible for us to not be concerned at this point. People can be hopeful about what the result is going to be, but we don't have any evidence as to why we should be hopeful. The polling is bad. The approval ratings are bad. We know about concerns about both the president's age and about the vice president if she were to take over, the member of the DNC said. The Wall Street Journal reported that Democrats' concerns were mostly private, but that a worry continues to hang over Biden's reelection. A former Democratic mayor and supporter of the No Labels movement, Philip Levine, told the outlet that the situation was similar to a grandfather running the company. It's a little bit like your grandfather running the company, and you know that he's at a point where where his heirs 
could suffer value if we don't change the management at the top, he told the Wall Street Journal. And this is very difficult. How do we get Grandpa to relinquish the CEO role? Well, the back and forth is rather interesting to observe. Of course, on the Democrat side, it's the age of the president. On the Republican side, it's the legal challenges of the uh, former president. Would that we could just have a straight up election with two people uh, of integrity who are capable of holding the office without much controversy. Ah, Sometimes I long for the good old days. More than 75,000 Kaiser Permanente employees walked off the job today in what their union representatives say is the largest strike of health care workers in U.S. history. A coalition of labor unions representing the workers notified the company last month that it planned to carry out a three-day strike starting Wednesday at 6. That's Pacific time if a new contract was not reached in time. The previous contract expired on Saturday. The strike will impact hundreds of hospitals spanning several states with picket lines in California, Colorado, Washington, Oregon, Maryland, Virginia, and Washington, D.C. Meanwhile, Hunter Biden pled not guilty to three gun charges in court. The son of the president pled not guilty to a trio of felony gun charges at the federal courthouse in Wilmington, Delaware. A federal grand jury indicted the 53-year-old last month on Counts of related to his purchase of a Colt a Cobra 38 SPL revolver while he was a drug addict in October of 2018. He faces a maximum of 25 years in prison and up to $750,000 in fines if convicted. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show. We'll be back in a moment to wrap things up. You're listening to The Georgine Rice Show podcast. It's aired on 93.9 KPDQ. Hey, we're back. You're listening to the final segment of The Georgine Rice Show. Well, credit card debt has hit an all-time high, a clear sign that many Americans are struggling to stay afloat during this time of Bidenomics. A poll after poll shows that most Americans fully understand that Bidenomics has resulted in rampant inflation, massive government debt, and a tougher environment for middle-class America. But unfortunately, a group of Republicans in Washington are offering no better than Bidenomics when what's needed are market economics and fiscal responsibility. Brandon Arnold points out that the guiding philosophy of Bidenomics is that the government is best suited to drive down prices and make economic decisions on behalf of Americans. The mentality has produced a host of failed policies, such as hefty subsidies for electric vehicles, market distorted prices, price controls rather for prescription drugs, strict limitations on oil and gas extraction and massive handouts for big corporations and blue state governments. Unfortunately, while Republicans are universally attacking Bidenomics with their rhetoric, some are actually emulating Bidenomics with their policies. The latest such idea, government regulation of credit card interest rates, comes not from Senators Bernie Sanders from Vermont or Elizabeth Warren from Massachusetts, but rather Republican Senator Josh Hawley of Missouri. To Hawley's credit, he's correct to identify that credit card debt is a massive problem. Collectively, Americans are now carrying more than a trillion dollars on their credit cards, and interest rates have soared since the Fed began aggressively increasing rates more than a year and a half ago. Many Americans are struggling and looking for relief. But Hawley's solution reeks of Bidenomics and would deliver an even worse morass. Government rate regulation would mean some Americans simply are no longer offered credit cards. Are people better off with a card with a 20 percent rate or no card at all? Others might um, might indeed see lower interest rates, but these would likely be accompanied by less favorable terms, such as higher annual fees, fewer perks and lower credit limits. Essentially, many consumers would find themselves in far worse shape 
than they currently are. Congress should do something about the problem, but it needs to be smarter about coming up with a proactive solution or solutions. Well, the first step should be to get spending under control. We're in the mess largely because the uh, president and Congress have gone on a disastrous spending bonanza that's helped fuel inflation. This government caused problem has resulted in a government led solution. The Fed decided um, rather deciding to hike interest rates on numerous occasions. Well, rather than implement yet another government solution, as Hawley suggests, let's instead fix the course, the core issue driving it all too much spending. Doing so would help us get inflation under control, could pave the way for rate cuts instead of more hikes. And that process needs to start now. And it needs to involve putting all federal spending on the table, even popular programs like defense and entitlements. Next, Congress should work to ensure that all Americans have access to credit. Lack of credit is particularly challenging for low income Americans who are in many cases invisible to credit agencies. And Congress can help fix this by passing legislation to expand the types of data that are used to calculate credit, including the regular payments people make for mobile phones and rent and for tenants in public housing. Well, this additional data would help underserved communities, underserved, I should clarify, secure access to credit cards and mortgages that would put many Americans on a path to establishing a good credit score that leads to more favorable lending terms. And third, Congress could improve and should improve tax policy to give working class Americans a better chance at success and reduce their need to borrow. Well, that means preserving a robust child tax credit to reflect a high cost of raising kids in today's economy. The $2,000 per child credit is scheduled to revert to $1,000 in 2025 when much of the Tax Cuts and Jobs Act of 2017 expires. Congress should consider expanding the credit to provide an additional $600 for younger children and to better target the credit toward lower and middle class workers. Well, Congress should also consider expanding the standard deduction to give working class families tax relief. This was a central component of legislation that Republicans on the House Ways and Means Committee passed recently. The bill also included several tax provisions that would incentivize domestic investment in machinery and R&D, all of which would help provide more employment opportunities and financial security for working class Americans. Congress should pass this bill right away. There is much Congress can do to help people who are struggling due to Bidenomics. But before they act, lawmakers need to understand that many of the problems that Americans are currently facing are caused by an overzealous federal government. Problems they have a role to play in. Well, that's why we should be skeptical of politicians, both on the right and the left, who promise us government solutions that would make us worse off. Such is the case that with the proposal to regulate credit card interest rates. This is simply Bidenomics by another name. No, thanks. Well, the drug that may now be named um, has been named. Only ignorant tinfoil hat-wearing anti-tax rubes or anti-vax rubes would believe that the drug hydroxychloroquine could be used to treat COVID-19. Well, that was essentially the narrative much of the mainstream media peddled and enforced, though uh, through fact checkers for years following Donald Trump's elevating the drug early in the uh, uh, in the pandemic. Well, back in April of 2020, NBC News ran a scare piece against the drug with a headline Mayo Clinic cardiologist inexcusable to ignore hydroxychloroquine side effects, followed by the teaser. While safe for most, the drug carries serious side effects for some, including sudden cardiac arrest. 
end quote. Well, it got so bad that even uttering the word hydroxychloroquine on social media was grounds for getting censored by big tech companies. Well, the H drug was taboo, perhaps especially due to the fact that Donald Trump had touted its effectiveness. It was mentioned that the enforcement of fact checkers, um, and we now know firsthand, were um, uh, in charge of overseeing all of that. Among the numerous differences of opinion, NewsGuard's uh, ostensibly objective team had with the Patriot Post and other sources was that the word hydroxychloroquine appeared in a small handful of articles, um, and not as recommended treatment, mind you, but in the context of challenging the uh, media for its reflexively partisan rejection of the drug. For that sin, well, the uh, many companies, many uh, news organizations lost their media platform stance. Well, fast forward to today, three and a half years after the pandemic began and following several available COVID vaccinations with side effects suppressed by the media, we might add. And it was discovered that the Mayo Clinic had a statement on its website effectively acknowledging the same claim that uh, then President Trump made back when he first referenced the drug. According to the clinic's website, hydroxychloroquine may also be used to treat coronavirus in certain hospitalized patients. Hydroxychloroquine should only be used for COVID-19 in a hospital or during clinical trials. Do not take any medicines that contain hydroxychloroquine unless prescribed by your doctor. A very different version of things. That was until a few days ago. Well, since that revelation, the Mayo Clinic quickly reacted, pulling down the offending page and replacing it with a new version consistent with the narrative. The new statement on the drug now reads, hydroxychloroquine is not recommended as a treatment for coronavirus disease 2019. Also, hydroxychloroquine does prevent uh, infection with the virus that causes COVID-19. So what's the truth? Well, we're out of time. You don't have the opportunity to go into it, but it does uh, give you just a glimpse into the drug that may now be named, but whether or not it can be named favorably, well, that kind of goes, comes and goes with the winds of change. Who can we believe? Well, we are out of time. I do want to thank uh, Dave King for engineering, James Blend for producing, and thank you for making the Georgine Rice Show part of your day. Hey, have a great night. Thanks for listening to the Georgine Rice Show podcast. If you'd like more information on today's guests, please visit the show at kpdq.com and like us on Facebook. And join us live every weekday at 4 for more critical thinking for critical times on 93.9 KPDQ. Three-star general Michael J. Flynn, head of the Pentagon Intelligence Agency, knew all the government's dirty secrets. He was one of the most respected generals in the military. Flynn knew what the intel world had been up to. He understood its funding. He ordered the first audit of the use of contractors. This set off alarm bells. The explosive new documentary, Flynn, deliver the truth, whatever the cost, and covers the facts behind this scandal. Flynn told the truth. He was the most dangerous person for Donald Trump to hire. I find out the worst enemy that I'm going to face in my life is right here in America. They took my assessment and they wanted me to change it. I was like, I'm not changing it. They had to get rid of Flynn. With in-depth interviews, archival footage, and never-before-seen personal record to the man behind the headlines. I just felt like I was drowning. Flynn. Deliver the truth, whatever the cost. Available now. Watch it today. Go to salemnow.com. salemnow.com.